Grab your pina coladas and tiny umbrellas. It's time for architecture, coffee, and dance. Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink, a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. So welcome to the second part of this week's bonus episode. Doing three episodes in a week has kind of been accelerating, but also kind of weird because I really don't have anything new to talk about before the episode begins. While it continues to rain hard down here, it's nice sometimes to think about escaping and daydreaming of sunny weather and drinks with fruit and tiny umbrellas and several of the projects that we are going to be discussing today really reminded me of that vibe, but kind of like the cold version. But first, I have relocated my temporary recording studio so that my cat doesn't find me. Apparently, she was pulling on my microphone cord the entire time I was recording and popping it in and out during part one. I couldn't for the life of me figure out why my sounds was so weird. So I don't use like autotune or anything like that, but I do record with record with a podcasting mic just because my laptop speakers aren't anything to write home about. But I think that the only thing she would have loved more is if I had basted the whole thing in like the wires and catnip. I was re-recording over and over again until like 3 a.m. And she was living her best life, so at least one of us was happy. Don't worry, I will be paying the cat tax and I have some images up of her up on the part one blog post. But starting next week, I'm going to be doing a big rethink and kicking off some Instagram posts and doing an update, as well as, you know, getting it all up to speed. So look forward to seeing more pictures and images popping up, especially if you are not a big blog person. But otherwise, let's get back on to the main topic. On Tuesday, I focused on bringing you background information on various aspects of of sea travel, oceans, AUVs, and ROVs. Today, we're going to just be talking about case studies and design. Again, anyone who suffers from thacylophobia, please give this episode a skip. But check out episode 10, which has been released at the same time as this one. So this episode is going to cover both the very old and the very new in water-based designs. So to kick off the episode, we are going to first cover McWardo Sound and the McWardo's research station. Since the sound itself is water, we are going to be sneaking this into this episode. 
While there are other bases in and around Antarctica, I am currently planning and researching a spinoff episode for that. So we are going to focus just on McWardo here first. So the McWardo Sound is located in Antarctica and extends roughly 55 kilometers or 34 miles and touches the Ross Sea and Island Shelf that we talked about last episode. So for anyone who doesn't know, a sound is the sea itself or an ocean. Um, it's a geography, sorry, not a full ocean. It's the type of sea. Um, it's a geo geological feature, geographical feature. Oh my goodness, excuse me. Not a musical note in this case. Not to say that the sound is quiet. It is actually home to a variety of creatures, including the Wendell seal and a series of, quote, antifreeze protein-containing fish, end quote, according to the website for the McMardo uh, Oceanographic Observatory website. On the blog, I'll be posting a link to their YouTube page if you want to check it out with both pictures and the sound recorded there. Since they are copyrighted, I can't distribute them, so I can't play them on the podcast, but I did find a sound of a baby window seal pup that I am going to be playing for everyone with a glacier in the background, just to give you a taste of what some of the sounds in the area would be like. So please enjoy this clip. sound itself is the McWardo Ice Shelf and McWardo Station and the Scott Base, or at least surrounding the sound. On Ras Island, which touches the ice shelf, is Mount Erberus, a volcano that extends up to 12,500 feet or 3,800 meters. This volcano is active and actually holds the title of the, quote, southernmost active volcano on Earth, end quote, according to Wikipedia. To be fair, I did double check this fact, and the title seems to hold true across the board from all of my sources. But the sound itself was discovered in 1846 by Sir James Clark Ross, hence the name, Ross Island, chartering the HMS Terror for the expedition. And yes, for any history buffs or lore buffs, this is that ship. The HMS Terror is, a is the ship that was eventually, quote, lost in the North Passage of 1845. And I say lost because it was wrecked, but unfortunately, we didn't know where it was wrecked originally, and it wasn't rediscovered until much recently uh, recently i did include a link to the wikipedia page in my notes in case anyone wants to read up on it because if you are not prepared the images that pop up when you search for it can be quite graphic especially if you don't have safe search on the ship was originally a vesuvius class bomb ship until it ended up being converted to uh to focus on polar expeditions 
While it safely made the explorations to Antarctica, it failed to survive the Arctic. However, each of its journeys, including the horrible journeys up north, it actually was accompanied by the same ship, the HMS Uberus, a Hela-class bombship. I'm sorry, I think I said that wrong. I think it's a Hela-class bombship. Uh, I believe that the name is what led to the HMS terror being so infamous, plus several shows and movies being loosely based off of the stories. While the HMS Uberus seems to not be as well known. The terror was rediscovered in September 2016, while the other ship was rediscovered in September 2014, and both were eventually given back to Canada and the Inuit people later on in memoriam. Getting back to the sound, the area was named for Lieutenant Archibald McMartin, who was also aboard the, aboard the ship. However, while the previous expeditions charted the regions, it was actually Robert Falcon Scott who was the one who officially created the first base camp, including the rather infamous Discovery Hut in 1902. You've most likely seen pictures of this, as the hut, or a memorial of it, is still erected on the island to this day. So while the history of the region goes on, it's actually the 1902 date that launches the series, or at least the start of the series of explorations, that end up in the eventual creation of the McMardo Station and Scott Base. Officially created in February 16, 1956, the station is located along the Sound and underneath the jurisdiction of the United States in conjunction with New Zealand's base on the Scott Base, a mere three kilometers or 1.9 meters along the road. The base is a first stop before it supply before the supplies make it further inland and was established as part of Operation Deep Freeze. As you may have guessed from the proximity to the Scott Base, one of the partners in the project was New Zealand, along with the UK, France, Norway, Japan, Chile, the USSR, and Argentina. Throughout its history, it has seen nuclear power, generators, you name it. However, it's the future and recent past that interest us, dear listeners. So within the base, there was one thing that the United States was originally failing to do. Prior to seven, uh, sorry, <laughs> To 2017, there were no long-term studies being done on the long-term ocean conditions for this base. Just to clarify, I do not believe that is true for all of the bases in Antarctica. This was just true at the time for this base. So in 2017, a two-year project was launched that created the McMardo Oceanographic Observatory the observatory is actually roughly 70 feet or 21 meters below the water. My favorite part of this project was at the time you could actually go on to either the website or the YouTube and watch live streams of the ocean. And just listen. And 
God, it was amazing to listen sometimes. I actually did listen to this when this project was live, which is how I knew about it. And it was incredible to look at the different camera angles and listen to the sounds occasionally. All together, this project was underneath Paul A. Cisco. While it lists the full credentials on the website, he was with the University of Oregon and funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation, Office of Polar Programs, and of course supported by the U.S. Antarctic Program. The ice is roughly 8 feet or 2.44 meters thick. So while diving began from the McMurdo base in 1961 and continued, the truth is, you know, having cameras and sensors running provides data that the humans, quite frankly, would never have been able to find out or duplicate on their own. Now, as I stated, the project completed in 2019, and while that doesn't mean it won't happen again, I noticed you can really tell who did their homework, research-wise, if the article was published after that date. I ran into a series of very funny claims that if even a few extra minutes would have made them realize their mistake. Don't worry, none of the sources I included were one of those. Uh, like I stated in the start, in the episode though, very first episode, check your sources, check your facts, and more importantly, check me. So casting ourselves all the way back to 2012, Oz Architecture, spelled OZ, was actually contacted the, by the station to create a, quote, more efficient architecture. When I mentioned all those different types of power sources, unfortunately, due to both the size and planning of the base, at first the base was not the most energy savvy. Based on a series of estimates I saw across several different sites, it seems that there was a large variation in the population, changing between roughly 250 to 1,200 or more people between summer, winter and summer. As one can guess, it gets quite a bit colder in the winter, so many people only stay part of the year or rotate out. Which I guess is good because, you know, instant freezer for a good chunk of the year. But as designers, the cold temperatures are a major hurdle to overcome. Add into effect the other conditions like the challenges by being even on an ice shelf present would present, you know, like ice, anchor ice. Um, so to clarify, anchor ice, this is where the water is so much colder underneath the ice shelves. It actually causes ice to gather on the ocean floor, which can be pulled up by accident or weighed down the anchors. So hence the name. So in addition to the normal challenges, you also have to factor in ice that only forms on the ocean floor underneath extreme conditions and sometimes 24 hour sunlight. But Oz architecture seems to have certainly delivered. 
They decided to redesign the base into a six campus building structure. Six building campus, oh my goodness. <laughs> and the renders are absolutely stunning. They moved it to being roughly 300,000 square feet or 27,870.9 square meters campus with walk with walkways along the exterior of the building. One of the key concepts I say repeated multiple times or I saw repeated multiple times was conservation. In addition to the conservation of energy, they both maintained space and provided more opportunities for recreation and general living. According to their website, they are currently under construction under a 300 million USD uh, United States dollar contract. So my favorite part of the renders is that they are creating sleek designs that also capture the snow and the terrain of Antarctica. And that the pictures of the inside they show, they could be anywhere in the world with the amount of lighting and the ways that the spaces are designed. I am going to broadly speak for everyone when I say that most of our understanding and images of Antarctica are solely due to a mixture of documentary and horror movies. So this change might seem, seems like an absolutely huge difference. Additionally, in the renders, the materials are light and airy with plenty of windows and open spaces. The current base is somewhere around 100 buildings, at least according to the various different websites I looked at. So condensing everything is probably a dream come true. I know as I unpack my holiday boxes that everyone would love for me to condense. But is but factoring in the extreme temperatures as well? Altogether, I look forward to seeing how it progresses and wish everyone luck on the construction and their research. Stay cozy, everyone. I will definitely be keeping the listen out for any future long-term projects for ocean studies again. Additionally, in this episode, I wanted to bring up and cover a few different projects that deal with the reef and coastal restorations. So I mentioned last week a few projects by name, but I decided this week to just finish off the episode by just spending well, a paragraph or two about two projects that I would encourage additional research. One day I may come back to these, but given how much I discussed the base, I wanted to briefly mention how are they progress how they are progressing underwater designs. So Instagram has been an amazing source for seeing images of under of exotic underwater hotels and below water pools and videos of scuba divers bringing you deliveries. But what about the ecological designs? One such is the coastal lock, which provides a ton of crevices for creatures. 
An article in Desden, Desdeen, sorry, has a series of images of these cute and adorable shapes. To be completely honest, while I watched a video and looked at pictures of them being lifted up into place, I feel like they, like I could just pick them up. They're so light and airily designed. They are extremely classy and interlock wonderfully and double as defensive measures. Another way of accomplishing the ecological and the political is Jason Descartes Taylor's Underwater Museum. Located in Cannes, France, it is a series of breathtaking sculptures that could be accessed via snorkeling and diving and is a total of six, each on a series of faces. And honestly, based off of the size, you could probably see them on a clear day just from swimming across the top. Apparently, the artist made sure that each sculpture is based off of a real person, local to the region, and carved from the concrete with aggregates and a surface that promotes growth. Each sculpture is cut and shaped into two halves or fragments and is a political statement about the ocean. One of the most powerful images to me is where the face is pointed to the right of the image and the split between the fragments is extremely visible. Front and center. The camera is clearly tilted with the surface lolling overhead, creating a canopy or ceiling with the surface texture. And the blue abyss of the Mediterranean Sea extends beyond what the eye can see. For me, that is incredibly comforting. Especially once growth hits, seeing life and extending and imagining the possibilities of what could be. I take comfort in the infinite. Though I know to some that's overwhelming. To me, I see it as the knowledge that something is out there, that there is more beyond me, is a promise. The Underwater Museum is located at, at a depth of three to four meters and was actually first installed in 2021. So a brand new project. I love on his website, he includes the plant palette of the Posidia seagrass meadows, and I, which I am directly leaving in the transcript, the link to because it is full of great details and good descriptions. This actually project as a whole draws reference to the man in the iron mask. So just to explain, because I am that much of a nerd, I will mention that the man in the iron mask, as it is more than just a movie. So although a professor currently claims to have solved the mystery in his book, and that the man in question was Eustache Dagger, uh, quote, I think it's a nobleman, I believe, is what he said. I, can't, I haven't actually read his book. I've read a review of his book. Um, the man in the iron mask is officially an unnamed prisoner whose identity was romanticized over 
and over and over again. The book focused on it being a secret brother of the king. I'm sorry, the movie focused on it, on it being a secret brother of the king because this is the most popular theory pushed out by Voltaire, but most importantly, by Alexander Dumas, aka the writers of The Three Musketeers, one if not my favorite novel when I was a kid. As the area is the region where he was imprisoned, the man in the iron mask, was a fitting place for him to make mask sculptures. Again, this episode will have all of the sources from part one and two listed on both parts because I was often referring to pieces interchangeably when writing both episodes. This list is going to be massive, so I have been compiling it and I could have genuinely kept talking about this topic for absolute hours. Thank you once again for tuning in and a big thank you to all my listeners. And a quick call to action. Please rate and review, share with your friends, your neighbors, your family, your professor, whoever you think needs some architecture in their life. Once again, make sure to check out the other episode that's going to be posted along with this one. It is going to be episode 10. It's all one big conspiracy. And as always, may your coffee mugs be full and your ink wells never run dry. <laughs>